Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn. Join us this week as John continues his series on 2 Corinthians. Perspective. If you were here uh, last Sunday, which was like 90% introduction and 10% sermon, um, you remember I had everybody pull your cell phones out, and I had you open your camera and zoom it all the way out. I said, mine goes to like 100 times. And then I kind of said, imagine if you had to watch the entire service through your phone like this, and how shaky and disorienting it would be. And uh, your perspective would be very messed up if all you could see is what was right there in front of you. I thought about that more this last week, and I, I realized, you know what, you could probably adjust after a while so that you didn't have headaches and a vertigo if you had to only look in that way, but you'd sure miss out on a lot if that was your whole perspective. Uh, we also learned that back in the day, you know, pre-1300s on maps of the world would have the Latin words for no more beyond written uh, off to the uh, west of the Strait of Gibraltar. That's because according to what they knew, or what they thought they knew at the time, there was nothing more off than beyond the coast of Spain. That was the, the, the known world was known and there was nothing more beyond. Well, Columbus kind of messed that up because he came back from a long road trip and said, hey, there's more beyond. And so they had to change their coins and their maps and all of those things. And I said last week that in the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gives us a spiritual geography lesson in this passage. And I said it's the correction that's needed in everyone's life, but sadly in Paul's day and even in ours, it's also even needed in the lives of Christians. It deforms your life to live and believe that there's no more beyond. That's actually a deforming worldview. So like I said, last week was all intro and no sermon. So this week, let's just jump right in because uh, you're all waiting on lunch that you're soon going to be able to smell coming from the basement anyway. Let me read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start with the last line of chapter 4 because it's all about this perspective. It's where we get our context for this whole passage. So, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. That's a pretty hard to understand statement right there. Fixing your gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house or a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. That's a beautiful word picture right there. Swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. As a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident. And we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. 
So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And I'll add the next line of the next verse where we'll be next week. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. There's at least five themes worth considering in this passage this morning, so I'm going to try to move uh, as quickly as we can. But the themes are tense, close, death, confidence, and judgment. Uh, Before we do, I just want to say that the uh, comfort, the assurance, the hope that's communicated in this passage is Christian comfort, assurance, hope. It's written to Christians. All of the hope and comfort that we can get from this passage, it's irrelevant to a person not possessing salvation in Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, the realities for someone who's never submitted their life to Christ as Savior are kind of the opposites of everything that we're going to revel in this morning. It's almost all warning. Um, the, the opposites of these things are what a person is saved from. We, we throw that word salvation and saved around a lot, but we seeming, I don't know why, but we often forget that we're saved from something when we use words like salvation and saved. Saved from something, but our passage is going to remind us we're also saved for something and towards something. So let's look at this first theme, tents. Let's talk tents, or in Bible language, tabernacles. I, I mentioned last week that Paul was a tent maker and that that was a trade. It was very much a family business likely for generations for Paul the apostle. He came from a place called Tarsus that was a major center for textiles. Um, he, he uh, Working in this family business to be a qualified tent maker, that was a serious trade designation. That was, a, like, you know, we have our trades like carpentry or electrical, um, plumbing, all of those kinds of things. And you need to actually study and serve as an apprentice in order to be licensed to, to be one of those things. It'd be very similar in a first century way to being a tent maker. Um, your, your skills would be very marketable. And in, in Paul's example, uh, very portable. I, I read uh, in, a, in a commentary this week that Paul's tools as a tent maker, because remember, this is something he did till the end of his life. So Paul didn't like quit his job and just become a full-time apostle. But his tools for a tent maker, from what I understand, could be carried around in a bag about this size. So that's pretty great to have this trade that's so marketable and important and highly skilled, yet it's very portable. He could go anywhere around the known world, set up shop, buy some materials from suppliers, and start applying his trade as a tent maker. Um, why was there such a market for tent making? You know, was camping that popular in the first century? I, I'm joking because what we think of tenting and camping and all of that kind of stuff, it's really only about 100, maybe 150 years old. People 200 years ago, you're going to do what? You're going to leave your house? Some of you are thinking of that now when I talk about camping. When I talk about tents, I want you to think leather, primarily goat skins and the like. And well, who needed tents? Many laborers, many people would need a tent. If you worked as a laborer of some type or, a, or another type of skilled trade, let me tell you, if you got a contract to go build a house for a guy and it was 30 miles away, you weren't commuting home at the end of the night. 30 miles is a long walk. So now you need somewhere to stay while you're off applying your try. 
uh, trade. You think of markets and marketplaces. There were no malls. You can think of, you know, pictures of all of these kind of tents and, and things set up in an open market space so a person could have all their valuable goods on display and protect them from the sun. The climate was very hot. Buildings were very small. You can think of awnings and, uh, you know, affordable ways to expand your home. Um, maybe a rooftop terrace with an awning on top. And, and, and these, these tents and these things were, were, not, uh, they were not cheap. When I go camping, uh, we, I have something called the moat. Uh, my kids know that means the mother of all tarps. I have this massive tarp, so I can string it up on my campsite and uh, give you all kinds of shelter. You could put three picnic tables under that thing, and, and uh, you know, it's my personal, that's my skill in life. That's my big gift is stringing tarps. But it was cheap. You got on a Princess Auto, you could buy a tarp that would cover your campsite, and they, they, they're, they're so cheap. Tents, tarps, awnings, in Paul's day, they would not be cheap. They would be very valuable. You know, you think about the price the goat paid for that canopy to be made. And, and you know, in seams, there's thing about tents and tarps and canopy, the, the themes, the seams, uh, you know, leaking. So there was a lot of skill for these things, and they were expensive. You would have put a lot of money into it. Different tent makers would have had their own special sauce, their own kind of wax and oil mixtures for making those seams uh, waterproof and long-lasting. And because you had invested so much in this thing, you would treat it very carefully. I learned from years and years of camping with kids. I used to have this utility trailer. I'd just throw everything in there. We used to take a ridiculous amount of stuff when we would go camping. We looked like the Beverly Hillbillies. But I learned if you... That's a really old reference, kids. It's a very old TV show. If you did not put the tent and the tarp in that trailer in the right place, you know, after six hours of everything shaking in that trailer, the friction, you know, pretty soon the tent bag has a hole in it, and then eventually the tent has a hole in it. So even though these, these tents and canopies were, were important and useful, you also had to treat them with care. One time, uh, I set up my new-to-me eight-man dome tent. It was the big top. And I set up my tent. We had driven all the way from Sault Ste. Marie to Kilbert Park. Got there, set up the tarp, took toddler Jordan and Justine off to the beach to see what that was like. Tied my dog Sandy up at the campsite. Not thinking this might be stressful for a, an old dog to be in a car for eight hours and then abandoned at a campsite. When we came back, I now had a golden retriever-sized hole in the side of my new tent. Like she dug into it, you know, right into that tent. So tents are pretty amazing. They can do a lot of things, but they're, they're fragile. They have to be cared for. Uh, they, uh, they have to be maintained. That's the contrast Paul's making here in the idea of a tent, this body that we have now. It's not that our bodies are terrible or that they're uh, something to be ashamed of or something that we primarily just want to get away from because they're so bad or evil or anything. No, but they're, they're limited. They've got a short shelf life. I'm pretty sure that there are millions of people on this planet that last night slept in a home that was more than 150 years old. There are probably, because this shows how uh, kind of North America-centric my worldview is. I haven't been to Europe and a lot of places at any extent. There are probably millions of people on this planet that lived in homes that were more than 250 years old. But I can just about guarantee this. Not a single person on this planet, I don't think, slept in a tent that was 200 years old last night. Like, tents just don't last that long, right? They have this limited 
uh, endurance, durability. They have to take care of them. So as amazing as they are, um, they have their limits. And that's what Paul's kind of talking to us here about this, this, this picture of a tent compared to this body that we're going to get at the resurrection. You know, Paul's looking at the prospect of death. He's getting older. His body's taken a serious beating as an apostle. If you're my age or older, you're starting to become aware of old injuries you'd forgotten about, a knee here, a shoulder there, one ankle more prone to sprains than the other. You're reaching for your glasses more often, or you're just wearing them all the time. Like I said, it's not that tents are evil and non-campers, you'll have to take my word for that. It's just that they're temporary, they're portable compared to the permanent and the solid. So that's the first promised upgrade that Paul's giving us here in the hope in this great passage about the future, that we can look forward as believers, even as death is coming for each and every one of us, unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, the resurrected body of our future is similar but superior in every possible way. The second picture here is clothing. I noticed you all wore clothing to church today. <clears throat> here's a, here's a, I think it's called a chiasm. Scotty's the language guy. I've, I've got this next verse kind of written out uh, in, in a way that it was displayed to me in a commentary this week. Now we moan and groan, but someday we'll be clothed in a new body. We don't, do not want to be burdened, naked, unclothed, but have the confidence that we'll put on new bodies that God will provide and we will groan no more. You can say, now we moan and groan, but in the future we'll groan no more. Someday we'll be clothed in a new body, have confidence we'll put on new bodies. And the, and the main point of this passage is we don't want to be burdened, naked, unclothed. Paul in verses 2 to 4 uses the, the verb for to put on three times. And, and we kind of get fixated on the clothing picture because we're very visual and it's something that we have seen and can understand. But when he uses that phrase to put on, he's always trying to make a point about the resurrected body. You know, verse 2 in our passage explains verses 3 and 4. When we hear the word nakedness, we have plenty of emotional triggers that go with nakedness. We think of, you know, shame, embarrassment, awkwardness, being exposed. And the real thing that Paul's trying to raise our tension and stress about isn't really those pictures. It's the idea of being bodiless. And the assurance that Paul's giving us is that if they die before Christ returns, and think about it, every single person that had this letter written to them the first time, they all died before Christ's return. Every person that's placed their faith in Christ from that day till today that has died, died before Jesus returned. He's giving some assurance here and some explanation for oh, what's happening now, Where, what will happen when I die. Um, one thing for sure we know, our, our experience won't be some perpetual nothingness. We know at the resurrection we're going to receive this new resurrected body, and we long for that in our souls. We long for that. Uh, you might, I think that's one of these, this is where Scripture is called revelation. It reveals things to us. I think that I'm convinced that longing is conscious and unconscious. There are a lot. Don't ever kid yourself that you think you really know what you want. I think deep within your soul, as much as we try to deny it, 
We all long for something more than just this body that we're in. As amazing as they are, and these incredible things that you can do in a human body, and you think of the beautiful things that artists create with their hands, and the things that brilliant people do with their minds, they're amazing. But we long for something more. Well, the clothing imagery can also sometimes uh, can be used in Paul's writing for someone who puts on Christ or salvation. In Colossians 3, we're told to take off the old self and put on the new self. And and in Colossians 3, it describes it as being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. The salvation we put on in Colossians has identifying features. Any 15-year-old can identify one sneaker brand from another quite easily. Well, the new garments of salvation in Colossians, they have giveaway design features as well. You can spot them what this new self that we're to put on. Things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and over all these virtues put on love, which holds them together in perfect unity. The the way we live, somebody could say, hey, what are you wearing? Oh, I'm wearing salvation. (laughs) That's the the identifying feature of of my outfit. Well, last week, though, we touched on the idea that the ancient Greeks thought of human death. They kind of looked forward to it, some of them, because that's when the soul's finally going to be set free and stripped away from its body. And then, like, that, was, that was all they were looking forward to, is just being this floating spirit already, now no longer restrained from these uh, evil things that they thought of as their bodies. That's not Paul's language here. That's not Christian teaching. Paul's In Paul, the clothing Im- image insists that our soul is covered, our dying bodies swallowed up by life. We usually consider the resurrected body 1.0 being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and and we have good reason for that. But we think about it, his soul was covered by a body. It was visible to others. Uh, Even if instant recognition wasn't always the first thing that happened in those resurrection conversations, the important thing isn't that they didn't recognize him at first, The important thing in all those stories is that when they did recognize him, it was really him. One of my favorites, I had a few examples here, but I got to keep moving. One of my favorites is the one in John 20 with uh, Mary. And she's there. And remember that story? She's at the graveside. She thinks she's talking to the gardener. Well, the truth is she kind of is. Because Adam was a gardener in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus is the new Adam. He's starting a new garden the right way. But she doesn't recognize the first. They're having this give and take and then he... There's this beautiful scene where Jesus says, Mary. And suddenly the lights go on from her because she hears Jesus saying her name. There's something about the human voice, right? That, that sticks with us. We remember it. It's an intimacy. That's showing that she realized Jesus really is, that's really him. You know, I, can, I, I think I could still remember the sound of my father's voice. I can still, for those of you that have been in our church a, long, a while, I can remember Patsy's voice. You know, when Patsy said Lois, it was Lewis. I think in heaven, she's gonna, Lois is going to know who she's talking to because she's going to say, hey, Lewis, I'm over here. You know, that idea of a voice and that intimacy, that's the beauty of these, that's the teaching of Jesus. He's still him. That's the hope that we have even in our new resurrected bodies. We're, we're still us, even if it's changed so much. 
And there's a lot of things we'd like to know about our future appearance. We'd like to know what age will we seem to be. We have no reason really to believe everybody's going to be the same height, the same shape. Who knows what the standard of beauty will be? I, I kind of believe that finally being perfectly at home in our skin will be something that's new to all of us. Think of all the time we'll save, not spending all of eternity trying to alter the way God made us. But speaking about death is still an uncomfortable topic, and that's in our passage. You get the, you get the impression from talking to some Christians who I talked a little bit about last week that tend to want to fast forward too much to that future day, that there's just nothing but just great upside, and we should just be looking forward to it. And, and we think, well, what's wrong with me? Because I'm not really in a hurry to get there. To the, I remember my dad telling me, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. If all resurrected bodies are given on the same great day, the perusia, then like I said, nobody has ever really received theirs yet. So, so we talked a lot about it last week. Uh, about this idea of an intermediate state. And it's uh, a topic that a lot of different people have different views among Christians. Some people ascribe to some kind of an unconscious soul sleep where they're just going to be all called awake at the same time and then everybody will receive their bodies. Um, really, the majority of believers, in, in my own view, is that uh, there's a conscious awareness in God's presence immediately upon death. And we base that belief on some inferences from some key scriptures. So let me help you out with some of those. A couple of them are right here in, in 2 Corinthians 5, but others are in Revelation Philippians. First, Paul in Philippians talked about, in Philippians 1.23, talks about the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That is very much better. First of all, notice that Paul speaks of death as a departure from the body. And that's not into like nothingness or unconsciousness, but to be with Christ. If we're with Christ once we have died, then we continue existing. Secondly, notice in the Philippians passage that Paul speaks of this state as very much better than the present state. I don't have time to jump into it, but if we were preaching on this passage in Philippians, Paul's all about this deep down longing has to know him. It counts everything, counts everything else as rubbish compared to knowing him. Well, if upon death, he just goes into some kind of suspended animation, unconscious state, he's not knowing more of Christ. And he's very much in the same passage, looking forward to that time when he sees him face to face and he would know him. Um, secondly, Paul says, while we're at home in the body, in the passage we're looking at right now, that he would prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. <coughs> That's quite significant that Paul's actually speaking of the possibility of being absent from the body. That implies that we do have souls which continue existing after the body dies. And he speaks of this state even in our passage today as his preference that, which indicates, like in Philippians 1, that we not only continue existing between death and the resurrection, but we're aware of our, death, of our existence. Thirdly, uh, there's another passage, the thief on the cross. And I know it, it gets used to explain almost every aspect of theology that there is. I, I joke. But in that passage, in Luke 23, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, uh, some corrupt translations, uh, for instance, the Jehovah Witness Bible, 
They put a comma after today. So it's like what Jesus is saying very truly, what I'm telling you today is really true. Someday you'll be with me in paradise. But looking at the passage in context and the best biblical scholars say, no, the context is today you will be with me in paradise. That's the part that he's talking about today. That's what's really true, that you will be with me in paradise today. Um, Revelation 6-9 talks, uh, the apostle John has this uh, um, vision where he sees uh, underneath the altar in Revelation 6-9, and he sees the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. These individuals are surely not in a state of soul sleep because in the very next verse, they cry out, how long, O Lord, how long until all these wrongs are righted and, and your kingdom comes in full is what they're inferring to. I'd be careful about building an entire metaphysical understanding on an apocalyptic passage, but it certainly seems clear that these uh, saints under the altar aren't in just some kind of suspended animation. They're, they're doing something, they're serving, they're praising, they're praying, even in that situation. Here's Paul's tension. If you remember last week, I suggested that you think of the three states of being as A, that's what we're experiencing right now, though some of you might not have gotten enough sleep and you might be nearly in suspended animation. But A, we're, we're in our bodies and we're at home right now. Then there's B. This is the experience of every believer that's died in Christ up until today where they're in the presence of God, but they're away from their body and they don't have their new bodies yet. And then there's C, that great day when every believer gets their new body. Guess what? We get a new heaven and a new earth at the same time. Everything's made new. Everything fits. Everything is as God intended. It's an incredible hope that we have in the future. Picture, uh, picture it this way. The difference that Paul's talking with here and the comfort he's trying to give us is right now we're at home in our bodies, but we're away from the presence of Christ. And in position B, we're away from our bodies, but at home in Christ's presence. And he says, that's better. <laughs> Despite not liking the idea of not having a physical body, I would rather be there. There's a perspective for you. That's not something that a person really looks forward to, unless that presence, being in Christ's presence, is of more importance to them than anything that they could have on this earth. We're going to come back to that idea later. All of this is still very mysterious. There's so many details that are missing that we'd love to have, but it's all meant to remind us that this is our hope. It's still a major improvement with even more to come. <laughs> that position three is more beyond part two. And it's all meant to give us confidence, confidence. Why do people fear death? Well, Christians believe that one reason is humans were created for an eternal relationship with God. And that was damaged by the fall. When sin had came into the world, we all received a terminal condition. And, and the hope of eternity's guarantee in verses 4 and 5, uh, it has this beautiful picture of these leaky tents being swallowed up by life. That's amazing. So verse 6 says, so we are always confident. Verse 8, yes, we are fully confident. And it all goes back to the perspective idea. All of these confidences that we can carry with us throughout the difficult life we live on this dusty ball of a planet 
um, are based on things that we cannot see. So that's why perspective is so important, why we all need an eternal perspective. Our worldview needs to factor in the more beyond. Otherwise, we will cling to everything that we can that's on this earth. Verse 9, so whether we're here in the body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. Did you catch that? I didn't the first time I read through it. The goals are the same. In this body or in the next, in the new one. Same goals. Here's where perspective matters. You can be living your life around goals now that are the same goals you're going to have for eternity. When we see things clearly, when we're with him. Stephen and I lost a friend this last uh, fall. His name was Michael. He was a young man that was in my youth group, same age as Stephen. And Michael was in Stephen and Cindy's wedding party. And when Michael was in his early 20s, he was uh, studying for an MDiv at McMaster University, and he contracted a pretty serious cancer as a young man in his 20s. And we didn't know then if he was going to make it. And that's, we're talking about 20 years ago now. And uh, the wisdom of this world would be for a young guy with that kind of a short-term perspective for longevity would be, Mike, you got you got things you need to do. They would, they would give him some kind of a compressed bucket list. You know, you need to go and see your favorite sports team, or you need to travel and see this place, and you need to experience this, that, or the other thing. And there would be all these things that the people of the world would tell him, you got to do this. You got to seize the day because this, you're, you have a shortened lifespan. Well, what Michael did is he got married. Um, they adopted a daughter. He pastored two Two, he pastored a two-charged church, two-charged church in southwestern Ontario. For those of you who don't know that lingo, that means there's two little country churches that are too small in order to be able to support a pastor. So you kind of got to preach at two of them, take turns one week here and one week there in these two little congregations. And, and basically now when you think Mike just died in his early 40s, he spent half his life doing that. You've never heard of him. He doesn't have any books out there, never became this famous pastor. Um, I don't know that those churches tripled in size or anything during the time he pastored these two little works. I actually know things got harder and he had to be laid off by them just before his cancer came back and took his life. So people would say, what a waste. I think the Apostle Paul would say, well done. You, You were doing now the same kind of thing you're going to be doing for eternity. <laughs> Seeking to please the Lord. Um, just to make this sure that, uh, you know, we're going to move down now to our, you know, our last uh, idea here of judgment. That remember, we will all stand, um, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for good or evil, we have for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Again, just to be clear, that's not a question of your position in Christ. That's not to do with your salvation. Um, it has to do with service and stewardship for the things done while in this body. Here's a quote from one of my commentators. It's an evaluation that's concerned with the rewards for managing the incredible gifts of God to believers. And what she means by that is, what did you do with what you've been given? And not the, it's not about the determination of your eternal destiny. Last Monday was the uh, 
anniversary. I got to go down to my uh, visual aid of the of the week. Last month, last Monday was the anniversary of the death of five men. One was named uh, Jim. One was named Nate. Uh, one was named. Uh, I got all their names here. Jim, Peter, Nate, Roger. Um, in the 1956 Life magazine, um, had, a, had a cover. This is something special from my uh, library. You can take a look at this after. I'm not going to set it down near the uh, crockpots full of meatballs or anything. But in uh, 1956, the story of Jim Elliott is the famous name that most people have heard. It, just last Monday was the anniversary of their death. And so Life magazine, kids, this was a thing that existed before the, uh, you know, there were magazines. I, I'm, I understand that in the 1950s, Life magazine had a, it, 13 or 14 million subscriptions. And so this particular edition from just a few weeks later, January 1956, I've, I understand from other books I've read on the topic that this is how the world even knew that Jim Elliott and his friends had been murdered. This is like the hot off the press release. And I found it amazing that there's a 10-page spread on the story. And, and like when I say a 10-page spread, I mean like pretty big pages. And in Life magazine, there, there are a 10-page description of the whole story. There's the men um, in the, that, that had their lives taken really just days after they arrived on the scene. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. 10 pages. And what's Jim Elliott? He's the one that's more famous. It's Mostly he's more famous because his wife wrote some major books and she was the uh, kind of person that really continued to expand the story. One quote that he's the most famous for that I'm sure is not new to any of us is the one that it's printed on the sides of churches, at Bible colleges, on plaques. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now remember, this is a man who died at 28 years of age saying that. It's a pretty, pretty incredible quote. Probably many of you in this room have heard that one before. Well, in my article on page 11, there's, a, there's another one that fits our passage for today. And uh, on page 11, it says about the story you're about to read. It's the story of five men who pointedly subscribed to the words which one of them, James Elliott, wrote in a diary five years ago. He would have only been 23 when he wrote that, about the age of our church. And he wrote this. When it comes time to die, make sure all you have to do is die. When it comes time to die, make sure all you have to do is die. There's a man who is very confident in his salvation, but he knew he one day would answer for how he spent the life that he was given and the gifts that God gave him. Some people might think, well, what a waste. He, all the training and, and like he was killed within a week or so after arriving on the scene. Um, Pastor Stephen's dad actually is on a first name basis with the son of one of these missionaries, uh, Nate Saint's son. Uh, and you know, you think, though they died in a week, I know by the time I'm in Bible college in the 80s, everybody was still talking about Jim Elliott and that quote. I, I don't know how many of my friends that are peers that became full-time missionaries serving in faraway places were still being inspired by that one story. Here's another thing for perspective, though. You know what a cover story is. Again, kids, magazines are kind of old, but magazines would have a cover story. Uh, an editor who like made a living selling magazines, there would be great debates in the room. 
What's going on the cover? What is going to sell the most magazines? And the cover on this one, Henry Ford II. The article's really about the fact that the history's biggest stock issue yet uh, tells a story of how the Ford Motor Company released a, a stock you could buy into, and it describes people chasing their stockbroker down the ski hill trying to buy in on this stock. Like, so it's funny that Life magazine that has 10 pages on Jim Elliott and his friends and their death in there, really the cover story is still, you know, this idea of what you really invest in and how important it is to make it while you can and, and that this is such an incredible thing. And, and Henry Ford II, you know, taking over from his father Edsel, did such a good job at turning around the Ford Motor Company that this is how valuable they are now. What about now? Ford Motor Company? Eh, how long is it going to be around? Who knows? Guess what? Jim Elliott's still around. The life that he spent is still having an impact. What he did in this life is the same thing that he's doing in the next life. I don't think he has any regrets. I don't really even know what I'd do with you know, the idea that there could be some kind of regret in the next life. But I kind of have a feeling in that transition scene, or once we see what life is really all about, we will think to ourselves, ah, I wish I had spent more of my life focused on that. I don't think, I think, why was that, why did that seem like a sacrifice at the time? Why did trusting in those things seem risky? Well, we've been given the most incredible investment in you could ever get from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And don't focus on what's right here. Fix your eyes on what's eternal. Remember that the things you do in this life, that, that warning of judgment day isn't just about a regret, it's also about encouragement that these things matter now. You can invest now in what will last forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that it's revelation, that it can give us the perspective that we need to see the world as it really is. But Lord, help us to live with that perspective. Help us to have the confidence that we can have. Help us not to fear what can be done to these bodies and what's happening to them now and to not grieve too much at the decay and the breakdown and instead be hungering for the new, the next. And Lord, help us as our first verse in next week's passage reminds us, because of these things, to tell as many people as possible this great inside information that you've given to us through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.